Welcome to the podcast where we talk to guests about moments in their lives they'll never forget. This is Backstory with Steve Legg. It is fabulous to have you with me today on the new show where I bring together an incredible array of stars of stage and screen, stand-up comedy, writers and artists, leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the five significant times in their lives they'll never forget. It's great to have you with us. Now, I know I say it every week, but we do have great guests on this show. And this guest today, I first got to know Oh, I would think over 30 years ago when he was 10 and I was, uh, I don't know, early 20s, uh, a big event called Spring Harvest, which his dad organised, and we would have a kick around outside our chalet uh, every afternoon. Yes, it's Gavin Calver, husband, dad, brilliant speaker, authored five books, chairman of the aforementioned Spring Harvest, the big cheese at the Evangel- Evangelical Alliance, which isn't easy to say as I've just proved, and a passionate AFC Wimbledon supporter. Here he is. Give it up. My special guest today, Mr. Gavin Calver. Hello, Gavin. Hello. What a wonderful round of applause. Well, <laughs> especially for you, my old friend. Um, Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. These are crazy days, but, you know, um, things are okay. It's been a mad, mad year, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it really has. I mean, let's be honest, anyone who gave the answer to where do you see yourself in five years' time in 2015, <laughs> they gave the wrong answer. So, oh, you know, man. it's been crazy. Have you been incredibly busy still, though? Yeah, unbelievably busy. I mean, leading the Evangelical Alliance, I mean, we're doing a lot, speaking into government, a lot to support the church. It's never been busier, and yet at the same time, it's never been more seemingly detached. It's a, it's a very odd time, isn't it? And things are going to get better? Oh, definitely. I, I, and things aren't all bad. You know, there's all kinds of changes going on in this time. I think about the time I've had with my kids this year. I'll never have that again. So things aren't all bad. I think the glass is half full, but things will get even better. And are you able to say anything about spring harvest? Because as I said, we met. Do you remember all those years ago, kicking a football round and breaking the odd window? At spring yeah, and, uh, and you being one of the leaders in the children's work. I remember yeah, all of that very well. well. Yeah. yeah, those were good days. I mean, spring harvest is an amazing gathering of... Uh, thousands of Christians who come together, what we did before COVID, hopefully will again afterwards. Although this year we went online and that was the biggest spring harvest ever. So basically it's a space for people to uh, encounter something of God, to be inspired and to also learn about what would it mean to make a difference in your community and also to have, make friends and have a load of fun. It's a really fun event and that's really important. And it all happens at Butlins, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Which, is, which do you know what, is a lot better than it sounds. The buttons of that we used to kick a football in yeah. was grim. The buttons of today is it's more like if you think of Centre Park, that's a closer thing. Oh, totally! And the staff are fabulous. I've been there over thirty years, and uh, mm. I've made so many friends, and still stay in contact on Facebook mm. with friends we made at Buttons and brilliant staff, lovely, lovely people. So, welcome to the podcast. The idea is five memories that yeah. uh, ingrained on your memory you'll never forget. So, Gavin. Yeah. Um, take us back to school days, maybe for your first memory. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of four kids. The other three are really clever, like really clever. Um, sadly, I didn't get the brains. I got the looks or the football ability. Um, <laughs> but I'm from a family of geniuses who all aced their exams. But I only got an A in one subject in GCSEs or A-levels. And the thing that surprises people is that I happened to be sewing. 
You see, at my school, you uh, had to do either cooking, sewing, or woodwork. And I wasn't allowed to do woodwork because of previous inappropriate use of tools. <laughs> and so I had to choose between cooking and sewing. I chose sewing, and it turns out I was amazing at it. And it was always one of those funny things that when you met young people, here was this guy who captained all the football teams at school, but also happened to be an ace with a sewing machine. <laughs> so there you go. That's one thing I won't forget, and one thing my friends at school won't forget, and one thing that uh, a teacher on Facebook recently reminded me of. Oh, I love that. So do you have a speciality? Is it embroidery or darning? Or uh, I'm running out of sewing references. Um, <laughs> I was pretty good at designing and making my own teddy bears with interactive features. There we go. Oh, have you ever tried cross-stitch? <laughs> no, no, I, get, I, I only did the sewing when I had to. But I reckon I'd be a dab hand. You know those older embroideries of people's wedding dates or Bible verses on the wall? Maybe if, uh, if it doesn't work out at the EA, maybe I'll go down that career path. Oh, I could, I can see that. He is risen uh, table uh, setting. <laughs> I like that very much. Okay, Gaff, number two, please. Yeah, when I was uh, 17 years old, my mum and dad moved to America, which was a really big deal. Um, they went there to run the equivalent. There's a Christian charity in this country called Tear Fund that helps the poorest around the world. And they went to run the American equivalent. And that was a huge moment in my life. I mean, I was 17, in my lower sixth of school. Uh, it felt too soon. I didn't know what to do, where to turn. And my life was a bit of a mess for quite a while. And I moved in with this couple who were from our church, who were an older couple. And um, it was quite difficult because I went into their house. Forgive me for being crass here. But I moved into their house. And a couple of days in, it was time for me to do my first number two, let's say. So I went up to use their loo in this new house. My mum and dad have moved to the other side of the world. I'm living with this fairly stern couple from Yorkshire. I'm feeling a bit intimidated. They're out of the house. I go up to do my thing. I flush the loo, right? And out the top of it, it just keeps coming up and it's pouring out and, and I can't stop the water. And the poo and the water is pouring out all over the walls. And in, in time before I even manage to stop it, it starts going through the floor. And I'm like, what do I do? I'm absolutely panicking. So I go to the kitchen uh, where they've got these sort of cloths for cleaning the uh, plates and stuff. I get those cloths, I go up, I, I wipe the walls, I try and clear up it. Um, uh, some of my deposit, let's say, has gone through the floor into a cupboard below. I do my best to clear everything up, and I'm absolutely panicking. I'm like, what's going on? My family have moved to the other side of the world. I've broken these people's house. <laughs> and then by the time I've cleaned it, I remember the guy coming back, and he came into the house, and he started sniffing. And he just turned to me and said, what have you done to my house? <laughs> and so I explained what happened. And then for the rest of the year that I lived with them, I wasn't allowed to use the toilet inside. Down the end of the garden was an outdoor toilet that they weren't using. That from that point got reopened. And whatever time of day or night it was, if I needed to go to the loo of any type for that whole year or so, I had to go outside to the bottom of the garden and use that one because the one inside was considered out of bounds to me. That's a moment I'll never forget. That is crazy. So it looked like Ooh. a dirty protest after you'd finished with it. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, yeah, to be fair. And, and maybe, maybe it's a literally podcast with Steve Legg and friends. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the memories. Sorry, Gav, I cut across your story there. I do apologise. Carry on. What else were you going to say? No, all I was saying was maybe subliminally it was a dirty protest. That was all. Well, it certainly was. <laughs> okay, number three. These are great, by the way. Okay, good, good. This one's a bit more serious. Um, when I was. Till my wife and I decided to have children, my biggest weakness, if I'm honest, was an unawareness of any weaknesses. Yes. And then, uh, then we tried to have children, and we tried for a, a couple of years or so, and then got the tests done. And I remember feeling really sorry for my wife because she clearly had a fertility issue. 
Um, and then we went for the test and it wasn't her, it was me. Oh, man. And I remember being told I couldn't have children. And that was just a massive deal. Because, you know, I've got, I, I, I love young people. You always expect it will be fine. The same week that I was told I couldn't have children, a 14-year-old in our youth group announced she was pregnant. And it was like, what am I doing here? What's going on? And that whole season of trying for kids was so life-defining. Because funnily enough, the month after I was told I couldn't have them, my wife got pregnant with Anne. Um, my wife Anne, sorry, got pregnant with Amelie. And, you know, I believe in a God that can move mountains. He can also impregnate women from sterile men if he chooses to. And our daughter came along, which was amazing. But then about 18 months after that, my dad was over. As, as I've said, they lived in the US and he was over. So to make him feel at home, I went out to get the national dish of Great Britain. I went out to get a curry and I came back with the curry and my dad looked like he'd seen a ghost and Anne was crying. And uh, I thought, what is going on? And Anne says, I'm pregnant again. And I remember saying, who's the dad? And uh, she's like, well, obviously it's you. Yeah. yeah, who's the dad? What's going on? So you assume, obviously it's a miracle again. Then we went for the 12-week scan. You know that moment, you'd have been there, Steve. You go for the scan, and uh, even though you can't really see it, it looks like something between a sultana and a mushroom. You pretend it's cute, right? Yes. So I'm there, and I'm pretending it's cute, but there's no sound. And the midwife says, uh, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm really sorry. Your baby doesn't have a heartbeat. It's died in the womb. And I remember being like, I don't know what to do with this. I can deal with miracle babies and I can deal with no babies, but what's going on here? And my little daughter, Amelie, is about 18 months, hugged me on the leg. And I, I, I really did. I mean, people might find this bit out there, but I felt God speak to me and say, do not be grateful. For, uh, do not be ungrateful for that which you don't have. Be grateful for that which you do. And I looked at my daughter and I was like, this is amazing. Then two years later, my wife got pregnant again. By this point, I've accepted that, you know, clearly I've been healed. You know, I've been to, uh, I've been prayed for loads of times for this uh, issue. You know, it's the one issue, fertility issues, where no matter how charismatic anyone is, there's no laying on of hands. That's utterly inappropriate. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've clearly been healed. And at 18 weeks in the womb with this latest baby, uh, we realized he's really sick. He was really anemic. Uh, there's antibodies my wife and I have that played off against each other. He was given a 5% chance of survival. The fact he was a he, by the way, is absolutely impossible because I, uh, I had a 1% chance of having a girl, but 0% of having a boy from my condition earlier on. And in the end, this little lad had nine blood transfusions in the womb. Um, there were two donors on the blood list with the right blood. My wife had a, had a scan every other day, a blood test every other day was in for a transfusion every 10 days. There's two poor anemic people somewhere who gave their blood so often for this. And each time I'd sit by her bed, because uh, what happened is there'd be this transfusion. They would take out half the baby's blood through my wife into her womb, into the baby's stomach. They'd take half the blood out and put half back in. And then she'd have to sleep it off for three hours to see if the baby had survived. And I'd sit by her bed and I'd just pray. I'd say to God, Lord, if this baby lives, you're good. And if this baby dies, you're still good. Either way, I'm getting up tomorrow and saying that you're good. Ooh. And we did that nine times each time that he survived miraculously at 30 weeks, which is early for a baby. Yeah. I remember the, the professor said, better out than in. That's literally <laughs> what he said. He said the risks are better out. And um, so they delivered the baby at 30 weeks. In this way, we weren't allowed to touch the baby, taken straight away, straight away to be put in an incubator for a few months. But um, they were going to hold the baby up to show us. And this tiny baby tailed up. And at that moment, he wheezed in the eye of the professor who's delivered him. <laughs> Love it. And is absolutely humiliated. I'm like, that's clearly my son. Yes. And then they took him off. He had a few more blood transfusions outside the womb. Um, but in the end, absolutely fine. And in fact, now he's a 10-year-old. He's a goalkeeper for a semi-professional football team. In fact, if anything, he looks like he's been eating premature children. He's not small in any way. He's massive. But that whole, that whole season of realizing I was broken, of realizing I needed to 
to realise that actually there was something I couldn't do of, of actually my faith life, of praying more, pushing into my relationship with, with God. But also, Anne and I journeying that over five or six years, that was probably the most life-defining adventure we've had. And it was really hard, but it was also amazing. And you came out the other side okay. Yeah, yeah, we came out good. Steve Legg brings you the best podcast every single month. It's so great. He's a great guy. No one knows more about great podcasts than me. The features, the interviews, even the adverts. It's a great show. Fantastic. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast with Steve Legg and friends. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the memories. So thanks for joining us still with us, Gavin Calver, CEO, stroke Big Cheese at the Evangelical Alliance. Uh, also a world record breaker, Gav, correct? Yeah, just about, just about. Tell us um, more. You know when you have those bonkers ideas that oh, sound frequently. great? Yeah, they, yeah, they sound great, don't they, over a beer or a coffee? Sound but then when brilliant. you commit to them, you're like, I've got to do it. And uh, when I used to work, I used to work for Youth for Christ. I was there 14 years before I came to the Evangelical Alliance. And uh, we used to try different ways of raising money. You know, we did marathons, the cycled lands into John O'Groats. But the most stupid one was the attempt at breaking a world record for the longest ever five-a-side football match. Um, at that point, it was 44 hours was the record. Wow. So we went for 48 hours. Now, the rules were really clear. You could have two teams of eight for any five on the pitch at any time. If anyone got injured or anything during the attempt, they couldn't be replaced. They had 16 players to see what happens. The fittest guy in my eight, I was the blue team, the fittest guy in my eight got sunstroke within two hours of us starting and then slept for 12 hours, so that really helped. And you ended up playing football. It had to be competitive. It was all filmed. It um, was absolute agony. I love football, but it's amazing if you do anything endurance-wise, you learn to not love what you previously did love. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, we played, I played in total of the 48 hours in a row. I played 39 of them. I slept for a total of an hour over the two days in 20-minute amounts. What would happen is you'd done average, you'd played maybe three hours in a row. Then you'd come off the pitch. You'd have to go on an exercise bike for five minutes to warm down, get in an ice bath for 10, eat something for 10, then get in a tent, which was open by the side of the pitch so you could still be seen on the cameras, get in a tent, sleep for 20 minutes, then someone would shake you awake, you'd put your shin pads back on, get on the exercise bike for five minutes, get back on the pitch. It was horrendous, but it was amazing. We raised about £60,000. The score was 900 and something to 600 and something. That sounds <laughs> awful. It's basically 3-2. I scored 89 goals, which I was quite pleased with. I'll I never do that in a game again. Ball, yes. <laughs> yeah. But I remember at the very end, there are a few journalists and things there. And everyone else is finished and is celebrating. And because I was the boss of Youth for Christ and had led this thing, I had to be interviewed. And <laughs> to know what, by the grace of God, I somehow came across articulate and able. And then I remember the second I finished the interview, basically, I fell over. You know, like you see in those comedy oh, moments. Yes. A bit like in Miranda, she always pushes over yeah. her psychic Stevie. I basically had no one push me. I just fell sideways to the floor and lay on the floor for a good 10 minutes thinking, what am I going to do? But it was agony. It was awful. I remember at night time, we had people, because you had all kinds of support people, but we had to put people behind the goals with a broomstick. Because if the goalkeeper looked like he was going to fall asleep, you had to poke him. Because if anyone fell asleep, we failed the record. If at any point it wasn't competitive football, you failed. And you'd stand in the goal, because you're not allowed out in the little box. You'd stand in there and just fall asleep. 
And in the middle of the night, we'd do like A to Zs of capital cities yeah. or A to Zs of inspiring figures. Obviously, you covered two of those with SNL for us, Steve. Thank you. And, yeah, <laughs> but it was bonkers. It was crazy. But you know what it did show? It showed what can be done when a bunch of people work well together. But I will not forget uh, one of the ladies who was on the support team saying to me when I came off at one point, because there were all kinds of guys all over the place weeping and blisters on their feet and struggling to keep going. So we had doctors to help with some of this stuff. And she turned to me and she said, Gav, it's really great what you're all doing, but men have changed, haven't they? We wouldn't have won the war this way. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> I love it, mate. And your last memory, please, Gav. Yeah. My last memory was, um, was about a year ago. It was the end of September. I was commissioned to lead the Evangelical Alliance. Now, for those for whom, I mean, what even is that? The Evangelical Alliance is the oldest and largest unity organization that seeks to represent and speak up for and unite the estimated 2 million evangelicals in the country. You know, it's got like 3,500 church members, 500 organizations, tens of thousands of individuals. It's quite a, in some ways, quite a big deal. At the same time, let's get realistic. There's a whole nation to engage with. So um, there's a lot more to be done. When I felt it was quite clear for me to go for this role at the Evangelical Alliance, that was quite a big thing, especially as it's a bit of a family business. You know, mm. my old man and my granddad both ran EA, so it's kind of, it was a big step to do. And I remember the end of last September, I was getting commissioned to lead the EA, and I was standing in front of our council on a load of guests, and I was stood there getting prayed for. And I just looked out, and I, and I caught my mum's my mum's eye, because my mum's been the daughter of the head of EA, the wife and the mother, with, choose which of my kids will do it next, I guess. And then I caught the eye of some of my really good friends. And some other, and I just realized this was quite a moment being prayed for and commissioned. I had all these plans. And uh, I remember at the end of it, too, because it's not just about those who agree with what I'm doing. It's about those who are supporting you. At the end, one of my friends who I was banned from church with when I was 14 for six months, I and mean, then he's not gone back to church. He's an atheist and he's an employment law barrister. And he came up to me and he said, I literally could not disagree more with everything you're doing. But well done, mate. I'm proud of you. So, you know, it was about having those people around us. But then what I didn't realize in that moment was leading the Evangelical Alliance from October the 1st, 2019 to today is not like leading the Evangelical Alliance in living memory at any other point. This coronavirus has thrown everything in the air. It's been really challenging. It's been really difficult. I think we've risen to the challenge a little, but little did I know that if I had known on the night what the mandate was, (laughs) <laughs> I might have walked away. Yeah. I wouldn't have, because I knew it was right. But this whole role, this whole season, this whole moment, it's a moment that is very challenging. And I feel like your strengths are strengthened, your weaknesses are weaker. And uh, we walk forward doing all we can to help the spiritual, social transformation of the United Kingdom into the future. Our access to the corridors of power has never been so good. I think our, our favour and connection with church is stronger than it's been for a long time. But you know what? Every day's a challenge, isn't it? I think if people listen to this or relate to this, every day's a challenge. And my advice to anyone and to myself each morning is stop worrying about the whole. Do what's in front of you. Keep going. And don't pretend it's not hard. Because when you realize it's hard, um, I believe in a God who draws alongside me and helps me with the difficulty. But when you admit it's hard, then you're not pretending to be some kind of champion that can do this in their sleep. None of us can. This is hard for everyone. But I'll tell you something. It's going to be a different United Kingdom in the future. And we need to make sure there's a different church for it too, so that we can do all we can to see the United Kingdom step into greater things going forward. And also, in my own understanding of what I'd love to see, to see more and more people find find a personal relationship with God for themselves too. Gavin, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, pal. You've been listening to the Backstory Podcast with Steve Legg and friends. Catch you next time.